Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the New York City-focused investment real estate podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. I'm your host, Bill Widener, and today, April 17th, 2021, I am excited to be joined by our guest, Michael Rogoff of ACAM Living Services, which was established in 1983. Michael has been with the firm for 15 years and now as president, leads this New York and Florida-based organization of 700 team members. Over his career, Michael has been recognized by the Building Managers Association and Smart CEO. He has a degree in economics from Muhlenberg College and a finance MBA from City University of New York. ACAM was partnered with private equity firm Nordic Partners in February 2020, Valentine's Day month, and about 30 days before everything changed. Michael, thanks so much for being here today with me in the Realty Speak audience. Thank you, Bill. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, tell us, how did economics and finance play in a property management? Everything we do on a day-to-day basis has some form of finance involvement, but especially in real estate, we're constantly working with our clients to oversee all real back office functions for the building and performing analyses for the boards at their request. So we're managing you know, their payables, their receivables, their payroll. We're asking them to do sources and use fund analysis on upcoming capital projects. It certainly doesn't hurt to have a background in finance where I can get involved when I need to help speak the language and help them get to where they need to be and have a comfort level with the finances of running a building. So tell me a little bit about the journey from uh, the uh, City University of New York to ACAM. Was there anything in between or did you get started with them right away? Actually, when I came out of college, I started in insurance, a different field, but helpful with real estate, obviously dealing with claims processing Uh, And insurance policy certainly comes in handy when managing real estate. After that, there was an opportunity, really an entry-level one, with ACAM to start as a junior property manager and really learn the ropes of what it means to run real estate. And, you know, here we are 15 years later. It's, It's been a great run with the company. And I'm proud to be part of the senior leadership team and moving the company forward. So that's great. I mean, you're an example of, you know, going into an organization in that entry-level position and working your way up to president. Fantastic. It can happen. I'm not going to say every day was an easy one. And I'm not going to say every day going forward is going to be an easy one. It was a good run. I really enjoy what I do. But most importantly, we have a great team. And the people that I work with are are absolutely amazing. I think all of us that are in business and uh, running organizations understand that there's really nothing easy about it ever. And and that's probably the first thing that you need to know when you're going to uh, take something on is that if it was easy, then everybody would be doing it. And that's why not everybody's doing it. And you get to do it because you recognize that from the beginning. Exactly. Every day has its ups and downs. We try to focus on the positive. People say to me, Bill, how are you? I go, you know what? I'm always great. It's the circumstances that ebb and flow. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah, so true. So anyway, thanks for sharing that. 
Listeners, you are in for some great insights today as we navigate what it has been like and will be like to operate as a living services management company in this new time of times. And there's a little twist here because ACAM is mostly condominiums and co-ops, and we will be using the word hospitality. So let's get started. What were the founders thinking in 1983, Michael? Well, um, I don't know that there was an official business plan associated with it, but one of our founders was affiliated with Mount Sinai Medical Center managing their facilities. And through a friend of a friend, he had an opportunity to manage a 12-unit building in Washington Heights. That's what started it back in 1983. And then all of our future growth has been through word-of-mouth referrals. So it started with one 12-unit co-op, and here we are about 55,000 units later in New York and Florida. Just, you know, word-of-mouth referral, one building at a time, over 300 properties now under management. So what are some of the ups and downs that have been experienced, you know, during the different periods here in New York City in the 80s, the 90s? and the early 2000s? Well, the industry has really changed dramatically from when property management of condos and co-ops really started to evolve or come to be back in the late 70s, early 80s, when all the rental buildings started to do their conversions, mainly to co-ops, and then the condominiums came later. So when that first happened, it was sort of the Wild West. For management of properties, there there weren't any real defined policies and procedures, and because everything was so new, people were were kind of just winging it. That unfortunately gave the industry sort of a negative connotation. Um, and also, you may recall there was a period in the '80s where some of the management companies and property managers got involved in some pretty bad things. They weren't handling the funds of the properties the right way. Some were getting involved in what they called these kickback schemes where vendors would mark up their prices and give kickbacks to some of the property managers. So there were a lot of indictments, and that really set a bad tone for the industry 30 years ago. Fortunately, ACAM never got involved in any of that type of behavior. And again, just little by little through the years, provided a a high level of service that got the attention of a lot more potential properties, which then became future clients of ours. So it's been kind of a slow and steady process of doing the right thing. And now we see the industry changing even more uh, as code requirements and compliance. You know, it seems that The city of New York every day has a new regulation, unfortunately, in response to generally something bad happening, you know, whether there being an accident, local law 11 started because, you know, a piece of brick fell off a property. So there's just more and more code requirements that we have to deal with. And board members are becoming more savvy now in what they're expecting from their management team, what type of reports they want to see, and really what we deliver to them on a day-to-day basis. So the industry continues to change. And and with that, and I appreciate you mentioning it, we're really trying to bring a hospitality aspect to, to what we do. So instead of just the standard 
make sure the building is clean, cut, checked, and deposit receivables, we want all of our properties to feel like it's a five-star hotel. We want to bring that luxury experience of service excellence to all the properties that we manage. You talked about the the onslaught of conversions back in the 80s and 90s from multifamily rental buildings to cooperatives. So tell the listeners uh, what the difference is between a co-op and a condo, because not everybody may understand the difference because it's kind of a New York thing. Yeah, it is. Co-ops are, are pretty unique to New York, although I hear there's a few in Chicago and I know there's a couple in Florida, but Condominium, I guess, is the easy one. It's typical fee-simple ownership, just like you own a house. You own that apartment, even though it's stacked on top of other apartments. You own everything about that apartment uh, inside. You're fully responsible for it. You have true, typical deeded ownership. You are called a unit owner. You pay common charges to maintain the common areas, which are the hallways, lobbies, amenities, building staff, but essentially you own that apartment like you own a home. And the approval process for purchasing, although there's a condo application, the board really just has a right of first refusal where they either need to approve the application or purchase the apartment themselves at the same or a higher price. In a co-op, you do own the apartment, so to speak but it's a different type of ownership structure where you're buying shares in the cooperative building as a whole, and your shares are allocated to a specific apartment. The structure is a little bit different, although, again, you, you, you own the apartment you're going to be in. It's more of a shared ownership structure, and you pay maintenance instead of common charges. Additionally, there is a proprietary lease that gets executed instead of deeded ownership. And you're essentially a leaseholder for an unlimited period of time, although the leases need to be renewed on a periodic basis, but you sign a recurring lease to occupy that apartment and the proprietary lease is the document instead of the deed. It's a slightly different structure that people get more familiar with in New York. And because of that share ownership process, there is an official board approval, which is now becoming more and more of a hot topic because you hear of these board approvals or board rejections and there was no reason behind it. And there's some bills on the table that may require additional transparency But a board does have the right in a co-op to approve or reject an applicant. Um, It's really supposed to be because of financial requirements, but you don't have to give an official reason. I've heard it's an incredibly onerous process. Uh, It requires pretty much disclosing everything about yourself financially. And then you have to go through an interview. Well, what's that interview process been like? I would imagine as the management company, do you help with these uh, board approvals? So we process the applications. Um, we don't weigh in on them. 
about the viability of whether or not an applicant should be approved. And that's intentional. We separate ourselves from that decision-making process, but we do prepare the applications. And Billy describe it as being financially violated. Every dollar that you've earned, wherever it is, you have to show it. So you will be fully financially exposed when you prepare these applications. And then the board will review that application. And again, we help coordinate and facilitate the process without giving our opinion on the viability of any applicant. Then if the board approves the application or wants to move forward with the process, they would schedule an interview with the prospective purchaser. That is generally a 15 to 30 minute meet your neighbor and make sure they would be a good part of the community type meeting. Um, I have heard these going much longer than that, but but that's typical. Uh, and in most cases, if the financial application gets approved to move to the interview level, most people get approved. I'm certainly not saying all, but most of the time, people get approved. I would imagine that the interviews now are being held virtually. Yes, most of them are held over Zoom, which has sort of been the way that we've been conducting a lot of our business now in real estate, which was not a thing previously. Everything used to be in person. But yeah, a lot of the meetings are virtual. And sometimes if you have a a pet, like a dog that's going to be occupying the apartment, the board actually requires them to be at the interview as well. So Oh, that's very For funny. those of you who are about to go through this process, be prepared. You might have to bring your furry friend. You got to bring your dog or your cat along. <laughs> and then I have one other question before we move on about the, uh, that approval process. I, I guess they have to be very, very careful about fair housing laws and uh, so that this way they're not being sued because the applicant has said, you're discriminating against me based on the fair housing laws. Oh, absolutely. That's very important. The only real reason to reject an applicant is if they don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to carry the charges and the building thinks there's a risk. You cannot reject for any other reason. That's not to say that that could have happened in some scenario, but correct. Per fair housing laws, you you cannot discriminate for any reason. And there's some legal cases out there where people have, you know, wrote down certain notes during an interview that have surfaced and become the root of a big discrimination claim. So people have to be very careful because you are correct. That's illegal. So on Realty Speak, we talk a lot about rental property and investment property. And here we're talking about ownership property, condos and co-ops. But in condos and co-ops, you do have units that are rented. I mean, in some cases, there are probably people that have bought condos, more likely, because co-ops have restrictions on rentals, and they never even move into it. They rent it out. Do you get involved in the management of those units as well? Yeah, we do. And we also have some rental buildings that we're responsible for. Um, most of our portfolio is condo and co-ops, but we do have rental properties as well. So yes, we get involved with the management of the apartments as a whole. And then we also have a subsidiary company that specifically manages the individual units 
for the unit owner. These are normally absentee owners who don't want to be involved with rent collection or making repairs in the apartment or dealing with any tenant issues. So we can handle that soup to nuts for them. But assuming we don't have that type of relationship, then yes, we are still responsible for running the building, even if certain apartments are rented out. And in a condominium, you could be looking at, I would say typical is 25 to even up to 50% of a condominium property could be rented out or owned for investment purposes by the unit owners. Co-ops, to your point, are generally a little more restrictive simply because they can be under the proprietary lease relationship. Most have a restriction of you can rent out your apartment uh, for two out of five consecutive years, really giving you the opportunity to rent out your apartment if there's a hardship, but not do it on a recurring basis so it would make sense as an investment. That being said, you have some co-ops who want to be more flexible, and those are known unofficially as condops because they're co-ops with condo rules. What's interesting here is that you're an organization, and you mentioned the word a hospitality perspective from the management of condos and co-ops, and we've talked about some of those uh, condos and co-ops being rental properties, and then you also have some buildings that you manage that are specifically rental properties. What advice or strategies would you like to share with the listeners today who are people who own mostly rental properties and not individual units and co-ops and condos in terms of how you've been approaching this over the last year during the pandemic and how they may be able to overlay that and improve what they're dealing with as a result of what's been happening. This has without question been an extremely challenging time and probably one of the most difficult financial economies that we've seen in real estate, where everything kind of just dropped off a cliff all at once. We've seen a lot of difficulties in high vacancy rates in some of our rental properties. You know, you always hear in real estate that price is dictated by supply and demand. It, it sounds so simple, but we hear all the time, what is this apartment worth? It, it's worth whatever someone's going to pay. And when the market changes very rapidly, there's sometimes a denial period from the owners or landlords that this can't be the real market. I'm just going to hold out a little bit until I get the price that I'm looking for. Our advice is to, to try to avoid vacancies and to try to, to make it work. It's not to say that we want people to reduce their, their prices unnecessarily, but markets change. Sometimes markets change very quickly, and the way to survive, thrive, and succeed is really to adapt to those circumstances. So there's always going to be a denial period. That's human nature. But to try to shorten that, to educate our owners and landlords in saying, hey, you know, understood your apartment used to go for 5000 a month. Unfortunately, now it's 4500 or or whatever the number is. And try to avoid the vacancy because every month that an apartment sits vacant, it's it's a tremendous loss of revenue. 
So you're suggesting that they rent it for less rather than keep it vacant because it'll be really hard to catch up. I'm suggesting that they rent it for market price, which sometimes becomes less when markets change very quickly. And I know it's an easier said than done type of thing. And it's not always the easiest conversation to have. But when dealing with rental properties, for many various reasons, you generally want to avoid vacancies. So you said that you had uh, an example of some buildings where the condo might be 50% rental property. Of that 50% during the pandemic, what would you say the vacancy rate was? So interestingly enough, condos and co-ops have seemed to fare a little bit better than rental properties. Most of these apartments, and maybe it's the single owners of real estate, the, the landlords that only have one, two apartments and don't have rental buildings, were more flexible or quicker to come to the realization that the market has changed because the condos have actually fared pretty well. If, if it was, you know, 50% and they were fully occupied before the pandemic, you know, maybe that dropped three to 5%. You know, maybe you saw a couple more vacancies than you did, or maybe some of the apartments sat for an extra month or two. But generally, those apartments are renting at slightly lower rents, but they're renting. And what have you found? Uh, in terms of people actually continuing to pay the rent? Because they know a lot of multifamily owners that I talk to, they have a combination of market rate apartments that were vacated because people fled the city. They have rent-stabilized apartments, but people continue to pay the rent because they have a rent-stabilized apartment and, and they're not leaving because they have a good rent. And then there's a little mix in there of both those categories where people are not paying the rent because they can't pay the rent. And then there are also some people that can't pay the rent, but they choose not to because they think rent was canceled, even though that's not the case. We just have an eviction moratorium. What are you finding around all of that? It's really been an interesting time. So when the pandemic first hit and things went into lockdown, you, you saw a lot of issues. You saw a lot of payment issues. You saw people leaving the city, breaking leases, you know, in, in volumes that you just, you haven't really seen before the pandemic. Things, things have settled down. They've gotten better. Some large rental buildings still need to offer um, very attractive incentives to bring or retain their current tenants. I've, I'm still hearing of buildings offering three free months on a one-year lease, which, again, we've never heard of before the pandemic. You would maybe hear of one free month, but, but never three. But things are starting to get a little bit better. Sure, a lot of landlords had to renegotiate leases that were already in place to lower rents to, again, avoid vacancies. But the big issue is that there's, there's no real consequence still at this time. The courts are, are not really entertaining uh, any type of eviction for nonpayment, uh, given you know, some of these uh, temporary moratoriums. So there's not a lot that landlords can do besides try to renegotiate and come up with something to keep a tenant because if a tenant doesn't want to pay, you can't really get them out of the apartment yet. 
there will come a time where the courts reopen again. They're going to get flooded with a ton of requests at once, but it, it, it makes it very challenging. Most people are doing the right thing. If, if people can't afford it, they're continuing to pay their rent. If people can't afford it, we're seeing our landlords do the right thing, try to work out payment plans or renegotiated leases. You have a handful of people that don't do the right thing, both on the tenant side and the landlord side. That's unfortunate. It's probably also human nature. But for the most part, people are trying to make things work. Well, now there's this emergency rental assistance program uh, that has been passed and it's in the works. And so we'll see how that plays out. But there are restrictions in terms of income. And uh, I know there were a lot of concerns that uh, the property owners that I talked to have about that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to doing an episode on that once it rolls out and we have a little experience with it. Yes, exactly. We'll see how that plays out. But as you said, those are um, generally pretty restrictive income requirements. So tell me a little bit about how the partnership with Nordic Partners has helped. It's been great. They came in at a, a very unique time. We formed our partnership. And then a month later, the entire world and in our industry was sort of turned upside down. If you can share with us, I think the listeners would be curious about it. You partnered with them, and like we said, 30 days later, everything changed. What were the conversations uh, during that time between you and Nordic Partners? Like, oh, my God, w what just happened? Were they thinking, well, maybe this, maybe our timing wasn't that good, or were they thinking, actually, our timing is good? What were some of the conversations, if you can share those with us? Sure. I mean, to be honest, it was just us working together to deal with something different. It wasn't a necessary panic or, oh my God, obviously the world around us was changing very quickly, but certainly in our industry and maybe most industries, we're dealing with so many challenges on a regular basis that we just, we just had to adapt and, and move forward. So it led to conversations around, you know, is our technology where it needs to be to sustain what is likely going to be a fully remote workforce? How do we get everyone on Zoom or video conferencing? How are we going to be able to inspect our buildings and handle the policies and procedures and other work responsibilities that we're used to doing only from the corporate office? And we would, we would have regular meetings, mostly internally w without Nautic. Uh, they've been a great partner, and they're here at a high level to discuss things with us, but really they invested in our management team and want to make sure that, you know, we're always able to make the right decisions and move things forward. So they've been very supportive. They've been a great resource as we needed them throughout the entire pandemic, which we're still going through, but it was, it was just a really healthy partnership. It was, Okay, this is something new. <laughs> what, what, how, how do we solve for it? What, what do we need to do to service our clients to, to the, the highest possible way? And how do we need to adapt to everything around us that is changing? You said the word technology, and I love technology. And I think that the many different versions of prop tech that we find coming out uh, have really, really helped the management of real estate. 
Uh, how is ACAM embracing technology and what are some of the things that may have been added because of the pandemic? I guess the best way to summarize our stance on technology and prop tech is we're all in. We, we want to be the tech leader. Um, actually, our, our mission statement is to enhance well-being and quality of life and investment value for our clients, but also to transform the management industry. So we're here to really push things forward. We love technology and, you know, we, we want to make sure that we're always cutting edge. So it, it started with basic stuff like let's get Zoom up and running as soon as possible as the pandemic started to hit. Um, make sure we have the right content management system. Make sure we have, you know, ways that everyone can remote in so that our entire company can remote in at once without any slowdown, make sure our servers are in the right place. And now a lot of the technology that we're seeing is about collaboration. It's about getting the board, the building staff, and the management team working together in real time to communicate information, collaborate constructively, and communicate to the residents what's going on, how we're doing things, and to map out a great plan. Uh, and then you see a lot of exciting things in the pipeline, like even for annual meetings, you know, to be doing voting electronically. Um, and there's a lot of mechanical, you know, very enhanced BMS type systems where, you know, you can monitor things remotely in a property, temperatures, you know, pressure, any issues. So, you know, one day it might get to the point where we have full control over monitoring all aspects of the building, even though we can't be there 24-7. So it's, it's really an exciting time for technology in the real estate world. Yeah, I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to look back and think of what we're dealing with now is the old days. And, and I agree with you. Technology is really changing many, many industries. Not to say that the pandemic is a good thing by any means, but the pandemic actually helped to kind of push things forward. It did force technology renaissance in our industry and I'm sure most industries. So we've been adapting and accepting and using that again as a catalyst to push things forward even more. So let's talk a little bit about that word hospitality. Uh, in, in some ways, people don't want to hear that word hospitality because the hospitality industry has really been hurt by the pandemic. And I would imagine that at some point it's going to be coming back. But how does hospitality play into what it is that you do? And what are some of your thoughts on, uh, you know, hospitality buildings and office buildings having an adaptive reuse to housing? It's interesting. You know, a lot of the properties we manage are in, in some ways mixed use. You don't see a lot of just pure residential buildings anymore. You see residential with some retail and possibly office space. And now even more, you see a hotel element where part of the building is a hotel and high-end buildings, the condominium units have access to the hotel. Obviously, they've taken a big hit during the pandemic. I still believe that everything will bounce back in time. 
we're seeing a lot of indications that things are already starting to bounce back, although nowhere near the level that they were pre-pandemic. But I think everyone, before they start reallocating units and usage, they're, they're waiting to see how things pan out this year as more and more people start to get vaccinated and we get closer to something like herd immunity where we can hopefully put uh, the pandemic mostly behind us. But as far as, as hospitality, you know, what we do is all about providing a level of service to our clients. You, you have an elected group of board members who are unit owners, typically without real estate experience, who hire us as the management company to run everything from the building staff to the finances to managing the physical plants, compliance and communication to the owners and residents. But the, the, the first and most lasting impression from every building, once you walk in the door, is the experience you get from the staff members and the building service workers. And we're really trying to replicate the experience you get when you walk into, you know, one of the top five-star hotels. And what we've done is we've invested in a whole hospitality service training team, which is really unique to our industry. And it's led by a vice president who came from former high-end hotel and Waldorf Astoria experience. And his, his only responsibility is to coach culture and cultivate all of our building service workers, we probably have over 2,500 in New York and another 700 or so in Florida, and making sure that they're always at their best, that they understand what it means to work in a premier luxury building and how to bring that ultimate high-end service experience to all the owners and residents from the first time that they walk in the door to every time that they interact with one of our staff members. And it, it's bringing that level of, of high-end hospitality to all of our properties, which has, has been a, a huge need and a, and a major gap in our industry. And it's been going very well. Now, how does that play into the properties that are purely rental properties? It's the same. You still want to have that premier experience, whether you're in a condo or a co-op or a rental property. We don't expect all of our buildings to be white glove, where you have, you know, doormen and, and top hats and, and gloves standing there. That Each building has its unique culture, and we respect that and we want to preserve that. But every building needs to be first class, no matter, no matter where it's located. Every building deserves that type of treatment. And most of the building service workers, especially in New York, where you have a union like 32PJ, which sort of dictates the prevailing wage, every staff member, whether they're located on Park Avenue, Central Park West, Fifth Avenue, Tribeca, Brooklyn, Queens, you know, the Bronx, it really doesn't matter. They, they all pretty much get the same rate of pay. And we want that experience to be the same. We want it to be a first-class, high-end experience. These are people's homes. In many cases, their their most expensive asset or one of their biggest assets, if they own, 
but even if they don't own it and it's a rental property, it's still their home. And, and we want them to feel that high-end service experience every time they come home. There's a big mix of buildings in the city. Talking about the five boroughs in New York City, uh, you have buildings that are 100% rental property that you know barely have a lobby. You have much smaller buildings that are walk-ups without elevators. I mean, what, what suggestions you, would you have to owners of those types of buildings across the city that weren't necessarily built in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, buildings that are 100 years old that are six stories that have 20 units in them. How can they apply some of these strategies to those buildings to increase their competitiveness in this market now where there is competition? Every building has its place. You know, not every building can be ultra luxury billionaires row on 57th Street. And, and people understand that. But as the saying goes, a smile is free. There's no reason why you can't provide an elevated level of service and a hospitality experience in, in the property, whether that's because you have three or four doormen in the lobby every time you walk in, a part-time doorman, or even just the superintendent and no doorman. That experience still needs to be a positive one. And it makes a huge difference to the quality of life, which then translates into to the investment value of the property. So I, I think it's always important to provide a high level of service, whether, again, a building has every amenity, in, including a fitness center, swimming pool. There are buildings now with uh, rock climbing walls and bowling alleys. I mean, it's, the sky's really the limit. And then you have some buildings with no amenities, but they can still have a fantastic staff. It, it can still always feel like home every time you walk in the door, again, whether you own the apartment or whether you rent the apartment. And the building can always be clean. It can always look its best. And that's the ACAM experience that we bring to all of our properties. There are a lot of uh, property owners that, you know, have been challenged by what's been happening with COVID. They've had high vacancy rates, uh, tenants that are staying on and not paying rent and not able to uh, evict them and put in a paying tenant. And it's been a challenge financially for them to provide some of these higher end services. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, I have some rental properties as well. And my motto has always been, you know, treat the tenants right and the tenants will treat you right. So although in tough economic times to make some difficult choices, I generally don't recommend cutting too many corners or, or eliminating or reducing too many services. Uh, it, it changes the overall culture and, and appeal of the building. And that generally works against an owner or a landlord, even in the short term, let alone the long term. Um, you start to decrease the overall value of the building. It will eventually translate into lower rents if you start lowering services. Um, so it's, it's generally not worth doing that. There are some extenuating circumstances, but, you know, real, real estate always has followed these up and down cycles. And in the long run, it always goes up. So it, it's really about weathering the storm and, and staying through the tough times and doing the right thing to keep the, the higher level of, of tenants or, or owners or whoever's staying in the building and let, let it be known 
throughout the industry that the reputation of that specific building has always remained first class, even during a challenging time. So you said you own some rental properties of your own. I do. Not anything like these people you'll see in the Real Deal magazine. (laughs) Enough to at least appreciate what it's like to be on the other end. Unit mix of the buildings? Condos, a brownstone that's rented out, a home. So a a good mix of different types of property. Right. So not multi-unit, more single unit things. No, unfortunately, I I don't have a nice portfolio of rental property. Not yet, at least, but we'll see. We'll get in there, right. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I have added a resource page to the RealtySpeak.com website. Designed with you in mind, it's organized with labeled sections that you can click on to reveal a list of professionals, organizations, and companies in that category that you may rely on to help you, the investment property owner. It is a work in progress, but there are already many resources there that you can benefit from. And the first thing you'll want to do is go to the first category, Property Owner Advocate Organizations. There you will find links to RSA, SHIP, and SPONY, and instructions on how to receive their incredibly informative periodic emails that will keep you in the loop with everything you need to know as an investment property operator. Check it out at realtyspeak.myc. It is resources on the menu, and I added a link in the show notes of this episode as well. My mission, be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate. I'm just a phone call away, 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Solutions in real estate, it's in my DNA. And now back to the show. Michael, before you mentioned that most of the buildings that you're working with are mixed use, not necessarily 100% purely residential, and then, of course, you mentioned that there's some office component there as well. How are these different property types performing during the pandemic, you know, starting pretty much from the beginning and how they're doing now, office, retail, and residential? Sure. It's been a pretty dramatic shift. Before the pandemic, it was a very strong real estate market, both for residential and commercial. We were seeing pretty much all-time highs, very much a seller's market, people pretty much naming their price. And then the pandemic hit, and it was a pretty immediate and drastic change. Residential, we kind of talked about it. There's been some vacancy rates. Obviously, pricing dropped a little bit but it dropped from an all-time high. So I wouldn't say there were necessarily great deals to be found throughout the city on residential, but it was definitely a softer market, still is, although activity has been picking up dramatically in Q1. Commercial is a different story. Commercial got hit very hard. And anyone that's in, in New York City that has ventured back in at any point in time between the start of the pandemic and now would would see all the vacant retail spaces and realize that this is a very different time. Those numbers have dropped dramatically. Vacancy rate is, I think, almost at an all-time high for recent years and very similar for office space. The amount of vacancies, the number of sublets that have hit the market because people have you know completely vacated their workspace within the city 
is extraordinarily high. So any of our properties that are mixed use that rely on that commercial revenue to pay rent for either retail spaces or commercial or office space, it's been very challenging for them because there are some tenants who are are still not paying rent. And it's the same issue where there's an eviction moratorium in place, even on commercial for non-payment. So you can't evict the tenant. And really, it's been people relying on PPP loans, both on the tenant end and on now the co-op end, because they're eligible as of recently to try to make up for these financial shortfalls. But it's, it's been very challenging for any property with any type of commercial space. When some of these units become vacant, either the residential apartments, the condos, the co-ops, the commercial spaces, does ACAM get involved in helping release those spaces or is that outsourced to brokers? Or do you have a division that takes care of that? We do have a commercial division and sometimes our properties will use other brokerage firms and we're certainly able to work with them as we tell our clients all the time, we're a management company first. Uh, we do have brokerage services, but it's not our core competency. That's very different than some of the other companies out there who are brokerage firms first, and they do management on the side. Management is our core competency. We can help with the leasing, both in residential and commercial. And most transactions that take place throughout the city, there is a broker involved. What are some of the stories that you could share with the listeners today where something happened and ACAM came to the rescue? Give us some examples of what's what's really happened out there in the marketplace with you and your uh, portfolio buildings that you're managing. We try to be the superheroes of property management on a daily basis, although it maybe doesn't have the glamour of saving the world, but we're always expected to be the resource and to do the right things for our clients. I think just on a regular basis, it's really about communication and it's, it's about health and life safety. You know, safety is obviously the most important thing. During the onset of the pandemic and even throughout the whole lockdown, the biggest thing that we could do was communicate with people. It, it, it was the only sense of security that they had in a very difficult time was hearing from us constant updates, just telling people, here's what's happening with the pandemic. Here's what the CDC recommends. Here's the extra cleaning schedules that we're putting in place at the building. And this was all something that was completely fluid, was happening in real time. No one dealt with it before. And we just wanted to make sure that people were hearing from us. And if they called us and if they had a question, and at some time we were being asked, medical advice. You know, hey, I have a cough. Do you think it's COVID? And clearly we're not qualified to do that. But I think people just wanted to hear a voice on the other side and and know that someone was listening. And obviously we wouldn't give them medical advice, but we would direct them to the CDC or advise that they contact their medical practitioner. But so much of what we do is just caring and communicating. As for some specific examples, Again, health and safety was paramount. We've done everything from working with staff members to to get them the PPE equipment 
as soon as possible to put up plexiglass dividers throughout their buildings, cleaning schedules when gym and fitness centers were were reopened to limited capacity, making sure we could get them the right filters and and the right cleaning supplies. But we're we're regularly in a position where we have to try to navigate some challenge that's that's being dealt with, whether it's a global pandemic, which hopefully we'll never have to tackle again, or just extreme hot or cold temperatures or noise complaints between two neighbors. You know, we're always looked at as the facilitators of, of trying to bring an issue to resolution. I promise people in this industry that they'll never be bored. And so far, I have, I've been able to keep that promise to each and every employee. But it, you know, it's, it's what gives us excitement and, and passion in, in what we do. We, we help people and we deal with challenges on a regular basis. Some days I go into the office and I say, you know what, I, I think I've seen it all. Surprise. There's always something new, but it's always about helping people. These are people's homes. And, you know, how can we help improve their quality of life? What about new development? What's happening with, what are you seeing happening with new development in the city now? And of course, you know, the word housing crisis is ubiquitous in all the media. Uh, And of course, a need for affordable housing. And, you know, we have HSTPA, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, and how that's impacted the uh, 1 million rent stabilized and some rent control departments. Uh, What are your thoughts around that? There's still a lot of active development throughout some of this doom and gloom discussion about how values have been dropping. Development has actually been pretty steady. What's happened over the past five to 10 years is every new development seems to be ultra luxury, not even luxury anymore. It's ultra luxury. And then how can we make it even more luxury? How is that helping the housing crisis? It's not. And what it led to was really an oversaturation of ultra luxury apartments. And as the market has shifted because of the pandemic, we're seeing those apartments sit for a much longer period of time. But there is still a housing crisis out there. And most of the development still seems to be skewed to the higher end luxury. And I think that's a major challenge that the city has. Without me getting political, it is an issue that someone is going to have to deal with sooner rather than later. Do you want to get political? I do not. (laughs) (laughs) Because we got a primary coming up. Yep, I most certainly do not. Uh, okay, well, I'll 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 let you I'll let you get away with that. Actually, your company does provide development consulting and management. Is that right? Correct, we do. So, give me some examples of uh, some projects. We do a lot throughout Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens. Our biggest saturation right now is in Long Island City, where there continues to be a lot of development. Uh, our largest project is Skyline Tower. It's the one right next to the city building, and it's the tallest property in Queens, and it has 801 condominium units. We've gotten involved from way before the pre-construction. We help work with the attorney and the developer on putting together the offering plan, the schedule of the allocation of units, also known as the Schedule A. 
the Schedule B in the offering plan, which is the initial first-year budget. And we just help work, work with the developer to get the building open, best practices, fully staff the building, and bring all of the services and hospitality experience to the building really even before day one from, from day zero. Uh, and then manage the building thereafter. It's completely finished now and 100% sold? It is completely finished. They started selling earlier this year, so they're not fully sold out yet, but sales are going extremely well. It is a truly magnificent building with state-of-the-art everything, and I think it's almost 30,000 square feet dedicated to just amenities. So it's getting a lot of attention and it's really a terrific property. Did they have to postpone beginning to offer units for sale because of the pandemic? The original timeline was supposed to be November of last year, and it just worked out better to start everything clean in 2021. But there really weren't a lot, if any, construction delays or or any issues with pre-sales in the building, uh, which I think really speaks to the development team and the sales team. They really did a great job. Probably more unique than not unique uh, in the current Correct. in the current environment. Now, is any of any of those condo units uh, set aside as affordable housing? Not in this specific property, but there are other properties that we're working with that have affordable components allocated to them. Are those going to be rental properties or are they going to be uh, condominium properties? Both. Some of them are new development rentals that we're working on, and others are condominiums that have an affordable component. So the affordable component of a rental property or a new condominium, why would the developer make a certain amount of it affordable either on the condo side or the rental property side? There's a lot of unique circumstances, but it generally has to do with buildable FAR floor area ratio and and how far you can build the building or different tax incentives. So normally a developer will add an affordable component if it allows them to build a larger building or more units, or they will add an affordable component if it gives them a 10 or a 25-year tax incentive, which will then translate into lower carrying charges for the apartments who buy in and lower carrying charges normally translate into higher sales prices. So those are the two main incentives for the developers to add an affordable component. We've covered a lot today, Michael. Um, I really appreciate you uh, sharing all the information that you did and being candid. And one of the last things I'd like to talk about is energy solutions for buildings and what is happening around all these new energy compliance laws that are in place or going to be going into place and how you're addressing that, especially with large condos and co-ops? It's a terrific question, Bill, because I think it's, it's really become one of the hottest topics in the, in the industry right now um, is, is all these changing energy regulations and and how buildings can continue to go green and reduce their carbon footprint. And the main thing that's starting to really push those discussions are these new energy grades that that you see throughout properties every time you walk in the door. Um, This started at the end of last year 
and it's a new local law requirement where almost when you when you go into a restaurant, you you want to see that A letter grade. Uh, buildings now have to post a letter grade based on their carbon emissions, based on a very complicated algorithm that the city came up with. So you see very few buildings have an A letter grade. A lot actually have C or D letter grades. And it doesn't mean that they're a bad building by any means. It just meant that they were built in a certain way. And it's very challenging to retrofit a building to be be green or reduce their carbon footprint when they were built. You know, some buildings are pre-war. They're 100 years old. Um, and they were just built in a certain way. So it's really sparked a, a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion on just energy management. Fortunately, at, at ACAM, we've invested very heavily in an energy department that handles everything from reviewing the letter grades to analyzing the required benchmarking and carbon emissions to greening initiatives, anything from LED lighting to cogeneration to conservation to purchasing energy from sustainable sources. And when you talk about analysis, I would say most of the number crunching we do these days is based on energy. And the new Climate Mobilization Act that was rolled out last year has pretty significant fines for buildings that cannot reduce their carbon footprint by it's either 2025 or, or 2030 when the fines really start to kick in. So it, it's gotten everyone's attention and it's definitely been a hot topic in the industry. Has there been some retrofit that you've done already or green roofs uh, that you can give me examples of? Everything from, from a green roof to most buildings have previously converted from oil to gas, but oil to gas conversion continues to be a big one to window replacements to improve the insulation of the building. There's some simpler things you can do like wrapping pipes to prevent heat loss. Any use of energy in a building is is up for discussion right now in, in ways to reduce carbon footprint. You know, we've replaced heating plants. Um, cogeneration is a big one. You hear solar come up a lot, but unfortunately, in traditional high-rise buildings, you have a very small footprint. You have a tall and skinny building, so it's not really conducive to putting solar panels on the roof and getting the maximum amount of sunlight exposure. So it doesn't always work, but it is something we've looked into. It is something we've done in buildings that have um, a larger roof footprint. But even, even things like upgrading elevators, um, when it's time to modernize an elevator, you can put in a new motor that is much more energy efficient. And there's actually a lot of rebates out there. For, for doing things like more energy-efficient elevator motors, uh, cogeneration, LED lighting, solar roofs, green roofs. So it's something we try to take advantage of either through direct credit or through low-interest energy loans to, to help these uh, properties take on these types of projects. And you facilitate this process from start to finish for all the buildings that you're managing? Yeah, it comes with the territory. It's just, 
you know, more of what we do uh, in, in running a building. But again, this is, this is one of the more exciting elements to what we do. And we have an absolutely fantastic energy team um, who are really experts in the field. But yeah, this is, this is something that we are expected to facilitate as a management company. We're getting to the point where we're going to wrap this up. And as our time together draws to a close, I do have one more question for you, Michael, before we go. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the property management world changed, what do you wish that would be? I guess I would just hope that people would treat everyone the way they want to be treated. I understand people get frustrated from time to time, and there's there's so many different things going on, and we're always dealing with people's homes, but we're here to always try to do the right thing, and I would love to just see everyone try to be positive um, about the experience, and, and knowing that this is a partnership, and we're all trying to help each other, and to try to always do it with a smile. There's too much negativity in the world already. I just would like to see people be positive. It's interesting that you say that, Michael, because, you know, there's that golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Nasim Nicholas Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan, which we actually just went through, A Black Swan with the pandemic, he talks about in his books, The Silver Rule, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, so I definitely agree with you. Everybody should be kind to each other. A smile is, is free that you said earlier. And, you know, sometimes I'm walking down the street and, you know, it's hard to see smiles now with the masks, but I think we've learned to see people's smiles in their eyes as their cheeks go up when they smile underneath the mask. And you make eye contact with someone and you give them that smile. For all you know, you completely changed their day in a very, very positive way. And so I think that's good advice. Thanks for sharing that with everybody. Again, this has been amazing, Michael. Thanks so much for joining me and the Realty Speak listeners today. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? We have a website which has all of our contact information and ways to reach us. What's the website? ACAM.com. A-K-A-M.com. So if people go to A-K-A-M.com, all the contact information, and if they want to speak specifically to you, they make that clear, and then you can get back to them. Absolutely. I'll put that in the show notes, everybody. So if you're driving, listening to the podcast, you don't have to write it down and remember it. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Bill. It's been great. You've been a terrific host, and it's been my absolute pleasure. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website, and there is an opt-in option at the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app, like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please, help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, 
you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time. 